Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. It's uh, been a couple weeks since I've been able to record an episode, and for that, I apologize. But I have found that I am busier than I expected during this pandemic, and uh, that's a good thing, right? It keeps your mind off of everything, keeps your mind off of reading the news and trying to decide who's telling the truth and who's not telling the truth. And I thank God that we know that he is in control of the virus. He's in control of the circumstances and the situations of life, and that it's not up to me to sift through all that information and run everything. I know that my responsibility as a believer is to care for others, to be sensitive to others, to be responsible, to do the best that I can to manage my time and my family well, and to manage our health as well as our spiritual well-being. So I hope that you would make the same commitment in your heart and just allow the the talking heads on both sides of the aisles and from both political perspectives, allow the talking heads to talk and you just spend your time talking to the one who's on the throne and in control of all of life situations. So after much thought, I want to address a topic today that I think many Christians have questions about, but also many Christians are frustrated about. Now, the topic is this. Really, actually, you could summarize it in a question, which is, why do I continue to sin, or why do I continue to struggle with sin after I've been saved? The answer to this question is very perplexing. And it's perplexing not because it's complicated. It is complicated. It's perplexing because it seems very straightforward, like, okay, God redeemed me, God saved me, now why do I still sin? Why is sin still a part of my life, part of my struggle? Shouldn't I just be able to be over that? Wouldn't that have been easier? Well, when you start asking those types of questions, you start getting to the heart of God's motivation and God's reasons, and we as finite beings can't understand all of God's motivations or all of God's reasons, but we can understand what he reveals to us in his written word. And in his written word, he's very clear that he wants us as believers to put off the sinful habits and practices that we did when we were unbelievers and to put on characteristics and habits and practices that imitate his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, of course, sounds very simple, but it is difficult to do, and and I had the opportunity to preach on a passage this past week, Colossians chapter 3, which was Paul's discussion, or one of Paul's discussions, about this very issue. How do you put off the things of the old man, and how do you put on the things of the new man? And in that sermon, I mentioned that there's a theological foundation 
that undergirds Paul's argument. And Paul assumes that his readers of those who received the letter um, to the Colossians, whether they were the Colossian church or whether it was one of the other churches, because the letter of Colossians was a circular letter, it traveled to many churches, or whether it's us today reading from a perspective that is you know, not quite 2,000 years removed from the original date of Paul's authorship. Paul assumes that we have mastered the theological concept that we are dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. And this is found in Romans chapter 6. Well, really, it begins in Romans chapter 5, and then goes into chapter 6, and then chapter 7, and chapter 8. But here in Romans chapter 6, that's where I want to spend some time today. Paul is writing to the believers, and he is explaining to them. He asks them a question, right? He asks them a question. In verse 2, he says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And the answer, of course, is that we, we should not live in it. We shouldn't live in sin, but the reality is we do live in sin. As much as I want to put off the sin of unkindness or speaking harshly, that's a process, and it's been a process for me in my life, and it will continue to be a process for me. But how can I continue to live in that sin if I'm dead to Christ? Paul begins the argument in Romans chapter 6, addressing people who were genuine believers, but who were saying, look, if God's grace was able to save us from our sins, if God, by the power by the power of the cross, was able to wipe away the list of our transgressions, then God's grace is able to wipe away all the transgressions that we do after our salvation as well. And there were some who were believers who were making this argument that, hey, because Jesus died and paid the price for your sins and God has wiped away all the transgressions, it's okay to sin because if sin increases, then grace increases and God gets the glory for saving us, for forgiving us for this great list of transgressions. This is a, a false teaching. This is a false point of view. While it is true that God does cleanse the believer, while it is true that the list of sins that a believer commits, God wipes them away and, and erases them, what's not true is that believers should actively pursue sin, that they should continue in sin as if nothing has ever changed in their life and there's no big deal about committing sin. There is a big deal about committing sin. It's a big deal to God because God's one requirement for his people from the very beginning in the book of Genesis all the way through the New Testament, God's one requirement for his people is that they are holy as God is holy. And if God's people are going to be holy, then God's people need to live in a way that reflects their creator, God. And that means that they're going to stop practicing sin and they're going to start doing those things that would demonstrate righteousness or a Christ-like character. Now, one of the reasons that people 
who are believers would adopt such a perspective has to do with the pleasure that we experience when we sin. Sin is fun. You cannot deny that. As bad as we feel, as convicted as we feel, after the fact, we know that sin is fun. Sin is pleasurable. Sin pleases the members of our body. And in fact, Moses was commended by God through the Holy Spirit when in the in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes that Moses forsook or he he turned away from experiencing and enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. That's in Hebrews chapter 10, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 through 28. Moses forsook, notice the text says, the passing pleasures of sin. We cannot deny that sin is pleasurable. To do so is to deny a truth about our enemy. All right, one of the first principles of warfare is to know your enemy. And we are in a warfare. It's not a, it's not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. And one of the truths that we have to recognize is that sin is pleasurable. We must know that about sin because we are tempted to commit sin because we want to please ourselves. We want to do what feels good to us. So Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, says, look, it's wrong to say, well, let's just sin more and God's grace will increase and he will get the glory. Paul says that's wrong. Rather, those who are dead to sin shall not live in it any longer. If you have died to sin, if your life has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, then you should stop practicing sinful habits. And here's how Paul explains that. And what I want to read to you now are a few verses that are often used to talk about Christian water baptism. But if you understand them in their context, you need to ask yourself, what does this have to do with water? All right, what does this have to do with water? The word baptize in the Greek language literally means to be immersed or to be submerged. There are at least five different uses of the word baptism in the New Testament. And so when we come across the word baptize, we shouldn't automatically assume that it is water that that is the means or the the substance into which we are being baptized. So here's verses, here's verse 4, 4 through 6. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, note the context here. If you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, how do you get baptized into Christ Jesus? That is something that happens to you at the moment of salvation. It is a spirit baptism here. You are being baptized 
into Christ Jesus. All right? You are being put into the body of Jesus Christ, which we call the church. And so this doesn't have anything to do with water baptism. You can be baptized into Christ Jesus without water. Water's not necessary for that. And in fact, water doesn't fit this context. Some type of spiritual baptism actually fits the context, and that's what I would say this is. This is our spirit baptism. Look closely at verse 6 and 7. What has happened? Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So, as Christ was crucified and he died, when we are baptized into Christ Jesus, a part of us dies. What part of us? The old self, the old man. And the old man is everything that you were in Adam. The old man is the sin nature that you were born with, the sin nature that you inherited from Adam. It is the sin nature that you were enslaved to and that cultivated your worldview and it directed all the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That sin nature, that is what was crucified with Christ. And so you, as a believer, are no longer in possession of that old nature. The old man is dead and gone. And that's why Paul uses such strong words here. He talks about being buried being crucified, being done away with. And the result of that is stated clearly in verses 7 and 8. If you have died, if the old man is dead, then you are free from sin. So what does this mean in practical terms? In practical terms, this means that the power of sin over you has been broken. Prior to salvation, you couldn't help but sin. That doesn't mean you are as wicked as you could possibly be, as evil as you could possibly be. No, there are a great many moral sinners. But what it does mean is that you couldn't make a choice to not sin. You absolutely had to sin because that was reflective of your nature. That is what you do. Just in the way that we say in our culture, pigs roll around in the mud because that's their nature. You, as a human being prior to salvation, rolled around in the mud of sin because that was your nature. That's all you knew. So as a believer, you have been freed from the power of sin. So therefore, you no longer have to sin you can, for the first time in your life, say no to sin and have victory and see real transformation. That's why, if you skip down to verse 11, Paul says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be dead to sin? It means that sin is not your master. The contract the covenant that you had with sin has been broken because a contract is only able to be enforced when both parties are living. When one party dies, the contract becomes null and void. 
So the contract between you and sin has been broken because of Christ's work on the cross and God's redeeming work in your life and the Holy Spirit taking your heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh. So that's the theological foundation for why we can say no to sin. And that deals with the issue of the power of sin. The power of sin in your life has been broken. All right, but you and I both know that we continue to sin. What is that called? That's called the presence of sin. The presence of sin. Even though there has been an internal heart transformation, even though the old man, the old nature, the sin nature is dead and gone, you and I, we have transformed hearts, so we have new hearts living in unredeemed bodies. What does it mean then that we have an unredeemed body? We have a body that still experiences the presence of sin, and the body that we have still enjoys the pleasures of sin. The unredeemed body that we possess is still habituated to sin. What that means is we have sin habits and patterns that we have established for many, many years in our life, and our body likes those sin habits. It likes those sin patterns. And so even though our heart is renewed and we are free from the power of sin, the presence of sin is all around us. And it's not just in our physical body. The presence of sin is around us because we live in a world that is underneath the curse of sin. And Paul, a couple chapters later here in the book of Romans, writes that even the creation groans under the weight of the curse of sin. So though our inner man is brand new, we still live in a body that is unregenerate, that is susceptible to the temptations and the pleasures of sin, and there is a constant war going on inside you as an individual. And Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, so you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Well, what are the desires of the flesh? The desires of the flesh are to, to commit sin, to, in, to do those things that are pleasurable but wicked okay? That's the struggle that we're having. And that's why Christians ask this question, why do I still sin as a Christian? One of the reasons that we still sin is because we have this unredeemed body, all right? It's not that we have these two natures living within us, it's we have an unredeemed body, but we have a new nature. Now, Paul gives some specific instructions about how to handle, how to rein in, if you will, how to control the body of sin. Look at what he says in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but... Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin, verse 14, shall not 
be master over you, for you are not under a law, but under grace. My friends, it took me a long time in my Christian walk to understand this truth, that the power of sin had been broken, but if I was going to see real victory in Christ-likeness, then I had to take control of my body. I had to take control of my thought life. I had to take control of what I allowed into my life. When Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, he's saying, stop presenting yourself to sin. Stop giving sin a foothold. Start understanding those wicked habits and practices, the sinful habits and practices that characterized your old man, and begin to put those off. But at the same time, you need to put on the godly habits and the godly characteristics that would imitate Christ and that would be pleasing to God. We have the power now to say no to sin, where prior to our conversion, we couldn't say no to sin. We could only delay the inevitable. All right? There was no real, true, lasting victory over sin prior to conversion. Oh, sure, you may get a little bit better. You may, you know, stop being as angry or stop drinking or, or stop uh, using filthy language or whatever the case might be. You may be able to do that for a little while through self-control. But that's not a true victory over sin because oftentimes you just replace one sin with another sin. You just channel it to something different. And what Paul is talking about here is replacing sin with Christ-like character and godly attributes. And that begins in your mind. That begins in your heart. And if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that. I am convinced the Bible teaches that God looks at man as a holistic being, that he is one, okay? And so there's no separation between what you think in your mind and how you feel in your heart. Maybe there can be conflictions at times, but ultimately, if you make a decision because your gut told you so, it's really, that's what your mind decided to do. Western culture wants to separate the heart from the mind. That's not how God does things. God looks at the individual as a whole person, a whole being. Paul is saying here, you have the power now to say no to sin because your inner being has been transformed and renewed. Your inner being is no longer enslaved to sin, but your inner being is enslaved to Jesus Christ. Now, we find here an interesting phenomenon, that there is a command to the individual Christian, do not let sin reign in your body. That's a command to me personally. All right, now, I can, I can control only myself. I can't control my wife and I can't control my children. I can point out to them when they're in error and when they have violated God's word, but I can't control them. I can only control me. 
And this may seem like a daunting task until we realize that we're to be filled with the Spirit as believers, and because we have the Holy Spirit residing in us, He enables us to say no to sin. He strengthens us when the war and the battle is raging. That's why we have to walk by the Spirit. We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit because He strengthens us to do this. If the Holy Spirit didn't strengthen us to do this, this would be a near-impossible task. Sin is not master over us any longer. God is master over us. And so what should the believer do? What should the believer do? I think that it's incumbent upon us as believers to realize that our obligation is now to Jesus Christ. It is now to God the Father to do those things which are pleasing to God. And so when I read my New Testament or when I read my Old Testament and I find that there are commands that God's people have always followed, for example, the command to not practice idolatry. That is a command that has been around since before the law, during the law, and after the law. That is something that God has always expected and required of his people to not practice idolatry. So if I know that in my mind, then I have to say, all right, the power that sin had over me that made me want to practice idolatry, that power has been broken. Now I need to present myself to God so that I am doing what is pleasing to him. All right? You are slaves of the one who you obey. All right? You're a, you were a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to God. So when I find these commands in the Bible, like don't practice idolatry or do not lie or do not steal or do not commit idolatry or honor your father and mother— when I find those commands in the Bible, I don't find those to be burdensome. I don't find those to be legalistic rules. I find those to be the principles and the practices that reflect God's holy character. And if I'm to be holy like God is holy, then I need to do those things because I am a slave to him. He's bought me because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and I owe him. He's my master. Look how Paul ends this particular section. He says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient, where? From the heart. You became obedient from the heart. So in your inner person, the transformation occurred. And then he says this, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, now you need to present yourself as a slave to righteousness to obey the things that God has instructed you to obey. Why do you still sin as a believer? Well, the answer is simple. It is very, very difficult to break the patterns and the habits of sin. It is very difficult to day after day after day, say no to the passing pleasures of sin and the temptations that are around us. It is very difficult in the environment that we live in, which is under the curse of sin, to avoid sin. And Christians have tried for many, many, many centuries, let's just be frank about it, many centuries, to avoid the 
in the temptations and the environment of sin. This is the reason why monasteries were built. And monks went away to be in a place where there was no temptation. But that, all right, that doesn't really deal with the heart issue. You see, the heart issue here that Paul is addressing is you need to know, you need to have an intellectual knowledge that the power of sin has been broken. And you need to live according to the freedom that you've now been given. My understanding of history is that it was very hard for that first generation of African Americans who were set free from slavery. It was hard for them because they didn't understand how to live as a free person. They were so used to being a slave that when they were given freedom, they didn't know what to do. And many of them went back and served their former masters, albeit for pay, but they went back and served them. It's hard when you were enslaved to something and that slavery is broken and you've been set free to then begin living like the person that you are now, a free person called to salvation, called to imitate Christ, called to be transformed into his image and to be his representative in the world. I think Christians struggle with this question because it's easy to look at the things that we should put off but it's hard to look at the things that we should put on. Christians oftentimes adopt external legalistic standards and say, as long as I'm not doing A, B, C, and D, I'm good. Okay, well, that takes care of half of the equation, A, B, C, and D. I'm not doing those things. But what are you doing? What have you done to replace those things? You need to replace those things. Why do I still sin? I still sin because I'm living in a sin-cursed world in a body that is unredeemed and affected by the curse. But thanks be to God that the power of sin has been broken and I no longer have to sin. I can say no to sin for the first time in my life. And my friend, I hope that you've said no to sin. I hope that you will make it a habit to say no to sin and to cultivate godly, characteristics, and godly qualities that represent our Lord and Savior well. My prayer is that you would experience genuine transformation through the study of this theology. You see, theology provides the foundation for all the ways in which we live. And if I'm honest with you, I tell you, it's going to be really hard. It's not going to be a snap of your fingers and then it's over and done with, and it's easy sailing. No, that's, that's deceptive. This is hard. Even though the power of sin has been broken, the presence of sin is with us, and we have a need to continually submit ourselves to the Word of God and to practicing the truth that we find in the, His Word. May you be encouraged by this. Know that you're not in the battle alone. This is the battle that every Christian is facing. And to understand the theology, to understand the reasons why we struggle, but why we are also set free, that knowledge is power. That knowledge is ammunition. It is 
important for you to have in your fight and in your struggle against sin. And you can ask God to strengthen you in the inner man so that when temptations come to the outer man, you can say no to those temptations. May you be blessed as you practiced God's truth in your life. 